0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the
1: Global Challenge Idea Showcase and Competition. It is nice to see so many familiar faces in the audience. And welcome also to those who may be new to the California Breast Cancer Research Program. I am Mel Kavanaugh-Lynch. I'm the director of the California Breast Cancer Research Program, the oldest and largest state-funded effort on breast cancer in the country. (laughs) Since our inception in 1994, we have distributed nearly $300 million in research funding to scientists and institutions across the state of California. I hope that you're as excited as I am to hear this morning's presentations. In just a few minutes, we are going to hear from each of our 10 finalists in the global challenge to prevent breast cancer as they compete to win this competition. I want to take you back to late 1994, early (coughs) 1995. I don't remember the exact date. But picture this. I was in a beautiful silk suit. (laughs) Stockings, heels, briefcase, the, the, the whole thing. And I was in a city I had never been in before. And I was really nervous. As I entered a room with a panel of eight breast cancer experts both scientists and advocates. The panel was there to interview me. Now much of the next two hours remains kind of a blur to me. Uh, but I do recall being asked, what do you think the greatest unmet needs in breast cancer research are? And my answer at that time was, you know, the understanding the basic biology of breast cancer is very important, and work in early detection and in treatment of breast cancer is critical. And those areas are all uh, thriving, and we are making great progress. The area where we really are not investing, that we need to invest in, is prevention. Now, I don't know if it was my answer to that question, that made me then become appointed as the director of the California Breast Cancer Research Program, a position I've held for the last 24 years. Um, And I am really proud of the work that the California Breast Cancer Research Program has done over the last 24 years. And around the world, there has been great progress in breast cancer, in what we understand about breast cancer, how we treat breast cancer, Um, and we still have some ways to go. And the sad fact is, I really could make the exact same statement I made in my interview today. That is why we launched the Global Challenge to Prevent Breast Cancer. Despite advances in treatment, people are still being diagnosed with breast cancer at astounding rates. Rates that have really not significantly changed in the last three decades. And of the $2 billion spent every year worldwide on breast cancer research, less than 10% of that goes to prevention. And even that less than 10% is often focused on, de- on developing targets and drugs to give to women who may be at especially high risk to help prevent their breast cancer. But I bet all of you know that anyone with breasts, and even some people without them, is at risk for breast cancer. And prevention drugs are not the answer for most of them. The challenge aims to accelerate research on an important but underdeveloped area. The primary prevention of breast cancer, which means preventing breast cancer before it occurs by changing our environments and reducing our exposures on a population-wide level. And I know we can succeed. We have known for decades that a woman can change her risk of breast cancer simply by moving from one country to another. We still don't understand why, but we know if a woman moves from a country that has a relatively low incidence of breast cancer to the United States, just by making that move, she increases her risk of breast cancer. And the risk to her daughters is even higher, and the risk to her granddaughters is even higher than that. Just with that phenomenon, we know that in three decades we can dramatically change the course of breast cancer and whether it occurs or not. We've figured out how to change it and make it go up, which makes me positive we could also change it and figure out how to make it go down. Prevention is the next horizon for breast cancer research. And we intend to catalyze it today by introducing you to some of the brightest ideas in the field. These ideas were selected by our evaluation panel from dozens that we received. By sharing them, I hope they will inspire um, all of you and others to take action, really specific action. So for the researchers, in the audience and on the live stream and who hear this in the future, we hope these ideas will ignite your imagination and excite you about going into prevention research. For the representatives of some of the other agencies around the world that fund breast cancer, we hope you will take some of these ideas and develop them and really prioritize and invest in prevention research. And for everyone in the room, please help us amplify our voice. Bring this message to the research funders you talk to, to the lawmakers you talk to, to anyone you think can make a difference in making sure we figure out how to prevent this disease. What we are going to do at CBCRP is advance some of the best ideas from our challenge with a $15 million investment over the next five years. We invite you to join the conversation about prevention um, on Twitter at the hashtag to prevent
2: breast cancer. Our first presenter is Victoria Seawalt, professor and chair at the City of Hope. Her... uh, her Entry is Breast Cancer Prevention Awareness Prevention Advocacy.
3: Too many women have died. What if we could prevent breast cancer before it starts? During puberty, a woman's breast is very sensitive to carcinogens, and that damage from carcinogens are thought to make women at risk for breast cancer when we all become adults. Women are exposed to many carcinogens. When I was in North Carolina, what would happen is the factories would load up sprayer trucks and go into poor neighborhoods, and they would spray all the chemicals on the road. And the little girls, thinking that this was cool water, would go and run behind the trucks trying to be in the spray. But there are all kinds of other exposures. There are pesticides, there's polluted water, and there's also hair care products and beauty products that are contaminated with hormones what if we could prevent exposure during puberty? How many breast cancers could we prevent? So this is just what we want to do. We want to start working with young women who are pre-puberty, we want to help them to start to identify the carcinogens in their environment. We want to help develop with them low-cost strategies to avoid exposures. And then we want to work with our advocates to make sure that these women are not just passive passengers. We want to help them be advocates so they can advocate for their right to live in a world free of cancer-causing agents that promote breast cancer. So what do we want to do? Well, first thing is we have an NIH-funded program that allows us to partner with our neighborhood schools. These are schools where the kids are mostly poor, immigrant, Latina, and black. And actually, some of our graduates here are sitting in the back. Um, And what we want to do is partner and select, with the permission of the schools and the parents, we want to find about 100 Um, eight to 13-year-old women, and we want to partner them with our graduates here, back here, who would be their mentors. And so we want to develop a big sister mentor and a young woman pair, and this is the unit that would be interacting with our team. So we want the team to go then and start looking at a woman's environment, to start to figure out what a woman is exposed to, and then take samples so our scientific team can start to test these environmental agents. Then we want to go develop prevention strategies. Some of them are very simple. you got pesticides on food, you go wash them. You have contaminants in hair care products, don't use them. We've been able to pilot these strategies and we found that they've been very successful. Then once we start to look at the samples, we also want to collect the cells in the saliva of our young women. And we want to ask a very important question, which is, if you have specific carcinogens that the women are exposed to, how much DNA damage are they sustaining? And then we want to develop and look at our prevention strategies and say, okay, if we start preventing exposure, do we lower the levels? And very importantly, are we able to stop this DNA damage? Now, there are all kinds of DNA damage events that can occur. You can have mutation, where a hunk of the DNA is taken out. Usually, that's thought to be pretty irreversible. But there are other kinds, like epigenetic damage, where normally the DNA is spun around a spool or a histone. And that can get unraveled. A little unraveling is fine. A lot is really bad. So we want to see, at the time of puberty, How much damage is there? And if we get rid of the contaminants, can we fix it? Then we want to go work with our really, really cool advocacy team. And actually, Susan is here in the audience. We have both legislators and we have advocates. And we want to go take our young women, and we want to help them to become advocates in their own right. We want to present their program to their school, to their parents, and also start to interface with the legislature, so uh, the California Senate, and also the U.S. House, and this is through the partnerships that we have existing. All right. So initially, we're going to start in Southern California. We live in L.A., that's our home, that's our neighborhood, those are our people. But after one and two years, we want to start expanding our program. After year one and year two, we will go and evaluate it. We'll go perfect it. And then we want to expand it to our local advocates and also to our partners uh, internationally. Our goal here is we have a dream and we have a purpose. We want to go create a generation of empowered young women who will advocate for their health, be able to go and avoid exposures, and then be able to go out and demand environmental justice and to live in a world free of breast cancer prevention breast cancer
2: agents. Thank you very much. Exactly a five minute that was great. Our next person is an advocate, Michelle Atlin. And her, she's the Vice President of Breast Cancer Care and Research Fund, and her title is, I love her title, Spice It Up, A New Way to Use Curcumin.
4: Good morning, everybody. When you're young and healthy, you tend to believe that bad things only happen to others, and you're far more concerned with your present than your future. We all understand how important breast cancer prevention is, and unfortunately, one out of eight women in the U.S. will contract some form of the disease in her lifetime. So how do we persuade young, healthy women to engage in breast cancer prevention? And more importantly, what safe, inexpensive, and appealing measures can we provide them? What if we could come up with a simple daily technique that would not only maximize your breast's health, but also enhance their appearance using natural ingredients? My idea is to create disposable bra inserts or pads infused with the herbal supplement curcumin. Curcumin is the active ingredient in the spice turmeric that's been used in cooking for centuries. It's what gives curry its rich golden color. But curcumin has also been proven to have remarkable antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties that I believe can be harnessed for breast cancer prevention there is evidence that it helps stop tumor cells from forming, growing, and spreading. Currently, the NIH has over 60 active clinical trials exploring the anti-cancer properties of curcumin, including one in which they're seeing if it reduces inflammation in the breast tissue of obese women, a group at a higher risk for breast cancer. Taken orally, though, curcumin is poorly absorbed in the digestive system, and that limits how it can be used for disease prevention. I believe that by applying it directly to the breast area, we can not only increase its potency, but pinpoint its focus. To enable this, advances in biotextiles are seeking new ways for active ingredients to penetrate the skin barrier without the use of adhesive patches. The textile would simply be in contact with the skin. So, inserts made from this curcumin-infused biotextile would be a comfortable and targeted form of breast cancer prevention. But how do we get women to wear them? What if we could also incorporate skin-enhancing beauty supplements in the fabric, such as biotin, collagen, green tea, or honey? Healthy women of all ages would be inspired to wear these daily. In the name of beauty, women are willing to put on face masks, get Botox injections, and laser off all sorts of hair. So by simply putting on a bra that they probably wear anyway, it would be easy to get them to engage in breast cancer prevention. After all, who doesn't want healthy, smooth, unblemished, and perky breasts? (laughs) Once we've developed the textile, we can find industry partners to help us produce the inserts. You know those insoles that have the dotted lines that you cut on for different shoe sizes? Well, to lower costs, we can print similar cutting lines on the inserts so that they could be adapted to any bra brand, size, or shape. No special bra would be required. And the beauty of curcumin is that it's non-toxic, easily sourced, and very affordable, making this a potential solution for women from all socioeconomic backgrounds. To make sure of this, the inserts would need to be inexpensive enough so that they could be widely distributed to free clinics or women's health centers. Now, to test for impact in terms of prevention, we should initially test the inserts on young, healthy women at a higher risk for breast cancer, such as those with dense breasts. We could see if there's a change in their breast density or their inflammatory biomarkers over the course of five years. If indeed, curcumin is not only an anti-inflammatory, but also kills circulating tumor cells, as has been demonstrated in animal studies, we could see a significant reduction in the incidence of breast cancer in these women by the time they hit menopause. If successful, this could truly change our odds. We would have a more holistic approach to breast cancer prevention. Imagine being able to repurpose an abundant and affordable natural ingredient to save lives. And imagine that while doing so, We could also improve a woman's skin health. If we could do that, why wouldn't we? Thank you.
2: Um, Next, we have Thea Tilzty. She's a professor of pathology at the University of California, San Francisco. Her title is the mother of all primary prevention assays. And she's sitting in the chair here because the stairs were a little difficult for her to do. So welcome.
5: Last week, my sister called and asked me um, why, after six months of elevated blood pressure readings, her doctor prescribed medication. I explained to her that high blood pressure was a warning signal for um, cancer, Uh, excuse me, that high blood pressure was a warning signal for heart disease, and that um, this could be very important in helping her avoid the disease. Excuse me. Um... She said, why isn't there a test like this for breast cancer? And I explained that with new information, there actually could be. So just as blood pressure is used to monitor, uh, monitor risk for, health disease, for heart disease, chronic inflammation is used to monitor risk for breast disease. Chronic inflammation is actually a driving force of breast cancer. The exciting new information is that all the known risk factors for breast cancer well-known ones like radiation or hormones, as well as newly appreciated ones like stress and smoking, they all act through chronic inflammation. It turns out that um, agents that reduce chronic inflammation reduce risk for breast cancer. So chronic inflammation is how the body reacts to injury or conditions that cause cancer. And what happens if the injury persists is that the area becomes hot and red, and uh, more blood vessels grow in the area, bringing inflammatory cells, destroying tissue that leads to the initiation and the progression of cancer. It's like if a, a fire starts in the um, a small closet in a building, and if left unattended, it can destroy the whole structure. So we can actually detect this ongoing battle in this area of injury uh, by developing a chronic inflammation index, kind of like a smoke detector for breast cancer. And it would involve two pieces. The first is either a saliva or a blood test, which would allow you to look for risk markers of elevated, prolonged inflammation, as well as the proteins that are released from the damaged area of the breast. This would be added to a thermogram, so a thermogram um, is, a, is a machine that actually measures heat in the body, as indicated at the end of the white arrow. And in chronically inflamed areas, an increase in temperature is due to all those extra blood vessels and the increased blood flow. Thermogram is not a mammogram. It does not use radiation. It's low cost, it's fast, it's painless. And what it does, it's been shown to detect areas that are at risk for breast cancer, 8 to 10 years before the cancer actually develops. This is unlike a mammogram, which actually detects cancer after it's been formed. You only have to worry about elevated inflammatory markers and uh, an elevated spot on the thermogram if you have prolonged elevation, just like high blood pressure. Investigators have shown that if you measure how long the inflammation has been there, how, how hot the spot is, and how intense the spot is, and for how long, it actually allows you to calculate the risk for cancer. Developing a chronic inflammation index would allow you to ad, um, address primary prevention on several different levels. It would provide impetus for individuals to actually modify their actions. Should they stop smoking? Should they eat more properly? It would provide numerical information to inform individuals of whether they're at increased risk for being exposed to agents that cause breast cancer, like environmental pollutants, <laughs> insecticides, sprays, etc. It could be a tool to identify unsuspected agents that either increase or decrease breast cancer risk. Right now, we know 40 per- patients... Patients come in with, um, 40% of patients come in with known risk, ca- risk factors for breast cancer, 60% they're unknown risk factors. This would allow us to identify unknown risk factors. And if we could identify agents that actually prevent breast cancer to lower the risk, this would actually be a game changer. It could also be an endpoint to assess whether prevention approaches are effective in real time. This is a test that can be taken again and again. If one has an elevated inflammation index, but you do not have a hot spot on the breast, that's an important time to start looking for hot spots in other parts of the body, because chronic inflammation is known to uh, underlie multiple cancers, as well as other important diseases like neurodegeneration, Alzheimer's, as well as chronic uh, cardiovascular disease. So this Assay, if developed, the mother of all assays, would give birth to a suite of assays, which would allow you to monitor risk in multiple types of um, major diseases and would immediately provide feedback about actions that are successful and actions that are unsuccessful. Thank you.
2: Next, we have Gertrude Boring who is a professor of virology at the University of California at Berkeley at the School of Public Health. Her title is To Prevent Breast Cancer, Eradicate Bovine Leukemia Virus, or BLV, in Cattle. Thank you so much, and don't forget to put the microphone right at your lips.
6: (laughs) So you may wonder what bovine leukemia virus has to do with all this. Uh, It is worldwide. Cattle all over the world are infected with it, and in the U.S., thirty-eight um, percent of beef herds are infected, and eighty-four percent of dairy herds. And uh, it's usually found in the milk and the blood of cattle. So you can imagine that a lot of our, uh, a lot of what we buy at the grocery store could have it, and it has. They. Uh, it has been tested and shown that, yes, uh, products that are marketed are infected. And so uh, we also know that pasteurization of milk and thorough cooking of beef inactivates the virus so that it cannot, it's not infectious, but many people have drunk raw milk and most of us have eaten pretty rare beef steak and maybe hors d'oeuvres that were completely raw beef. So uh, we do have evidence that um, people all over, uh, well, in the U.S., we have evidence that many people are infected, and the evidence has been growing that infection with this virus is associated with breast cancer. So... um, Okay, so how do we know it really is a cause? Believe me, I've run into quite a bit of skepticism (laughs) with this idea. So there are criteria that scientists use to judge whether something is a cause of a disease. And this virus has met all eight of the applicable criteria. And one of the most powerful ones, I think, is being able to visualize and see the virus actually in breast tissue. So the photo shows you a um, a section of breast tissue and the brownish-colored cells that the bracket is pointing to uh, are the ones that are positive for the virus. So using um, specimens from clinics and so forth, we looked at 430 specimens from women who had undergone surgery 58% of the breast cancer specimens that we had were positive for the virus, whereas only 24% of completely normal tissue from women that never had breast cancer, only 24% of them were positive. So they had surgery for other reasons. So this is very strong evidence, and the difference between those two percentages is highly significant. And one of the strongest... um, evidence or criteria of fulfillment important for proving causation. So the question then becomes, what do we do about this alarming situation that most of our food, our our beef and dairy products are contaminated with a virus that could be very dangerous if we do not inactivate it by heating? So the best, here's where primary prevention really comes in handy because we have a means of completely getting rid of this source by eradicating it from cattle. And it has been already done in Western Europe, Australia, and New Zealand uh, using the t- by testing the cattle uh, first to see if they are infected And then separating positive from negative animals, like you see in the photo. They have double fence because cows like to jump fences. So um, everything about their care is separated. Separate barns, separate pastures, separate equipment. And they make sure that the negative cows stay negative. So once all the positive cows have been marketed for us to eat, uh, all that's left is negative, and that, uh, that is where the development of the future herd uh, is. And eventually, these countries uh, arrived at a um, completely, uh, completely eradicated situation. So why can't we do that here? Why hasn't it been done yet? We, we could uh, reduce the future incidence of breast cancer to about half of what it is now, And uh, so let's eradicate first in California, that's what I'm proposing, and we're doing a survey to try to determine the um, ability of the industry to be cooperative, and if any of you have suggestions about how to persuade industry to go through this rather expensive process, let me know about it, and we can work together to uh, activate, to eradicate.
2: Next, we have Nancy Burrmeyer, and she is a senior policy strategist for Breast Cancer Prevention Partners, and her title is California Ports, Air Pollution Interventions and Breast Cancer Risk in Local Communities.
7: Thank you, and good morning, and thanks for the opportunity to be here today. Um, I want to talk to you about ports, pollution, policy, and breast cancer prevention. I want to start with the fact that California has some of the largest ports in the country, and as you can see from the slide, there are numerous smaller ports as well. And while these ports provide great economic engine for our state, they also are a significant source of pollution, air pollution in particular. And a lot of that comes from diesel exhaust. We know diesel exhaust is a carcinogen, and we know one element of it is a class of chemicals called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PAHs. And the PAHs have been linked to uh, increase in breast cancer. And of course, the communities, not surprisingly, that are most impacted by this, the communities that live around the ports, tend to be low-income communities and communities of color. So this is an important environmental justice issue. The good news is that those communities are fighting back. And they are pushing decision makers to implement policies that would reduce those emissions. Policies in specific interventions. So what we want to do is take a look at those interventions to see which have been the most effective, not only in reducing air emissions, which has been looked at, but the body burden of breast carcinogens in those communities so that we can determine what are the most effective. So we want to biomonitor those those communities to look at that. So what we would do is start by finding a community partner. This study cannot be done without working with the communities that are already engaged in trying to reduce these emissions. And they need to be part of that process from design to implementation to dissemination of those studies in a true collaboration. We also need to identify uh, upcoming interventions. And those interventions can be anything from prohibiting trucks from idling in the ports to investing in upgrading dirty diesel engines and trucks to cleaner technology, to looking at the equipment that transports cargo within the ports, so cranes and forklifts, and upgrading those to cleaner technology as well. So once we have the community and the intervention, we would recruit community members at various distances from the port who are willing to be biomonitored, and then we would take blood and urine samples both before the intervention and at a couple of intervals after the intervention, determined by however the the study design comes together. We would also look at air emissions data, and we would take surveys of those individuals so we can look at some other variables. Once we have those samples, we would test them for breast carcinogens. I mentioned PAHs as a a primary focus, but there are a number of other breast carcinogens like heavy metals, phthalates, dioxin, that can be associated with um, diesel exhaust. So we would look at all of those. But we would also look at what's called PAH adducts. An adduct is when a -A PAH attaches to DNA, and it is considered a precursor or a better indication of increased breast cancer risk than simply looking at exposure. So that would be an important piece of how we would look at this. And what that would tell us is, if we could compare different interventions, we could see which intervention are the most effective, again, not just at air emissions reductions, but specifically body burdens of these chemicals and these precursors to breast cancer. And then we could use that information to focus our advocacy efforts and the advocacy efforts of the communities on the most effective interventions so we can spend our limited resources in the most effective way. California is the perfect place to do this. We have enormous ports and a lot of them. We have communities that are sophisticated and motivated to make changes to the policies within these ports and get these interventions put together or implemented. We have researchers that are very very good at collaborating with local communities and that's a really important piece and something I think fairly unique to California. And we have a top-notch biomonitoring program in the state. We have one of the, we have the best state program anywhere in the country. And we can use those resources to get some answers about what works best and then to focus those resources that we have to further reduce these emissions and these breast cancer risks for communities living around those ports. Thank you.
2: Our next uh, presenter is Vincent Bessonot. Bessonot? Is that, That's I, right. I know I butchered yeah. it, but it's pretty close yeah. Yeah. for an American. Sorry. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> um, he's a, he is a research scientist at the Silent Spring Institute, and his title is Mapping the Human Exposome to Uncover the Causes of Breast Cancer. Vincent.
8: In 2003, an international team of scientists announced that they were able to fully sequence the human DNA, and this supports new research avenues for understanding complex diseases, including cancers. The Human Genome Project was one of the greatest achievements in the recent scientific history, but even the founder of the project expressed frustration because differences in genes is only explaining a small proportion of disease risk. What they have was only half of the story. Shortly after the Human Genome Project, a cancer epidemiologist named Christopher Wilde proposed to complement the genome with an exposome. The exposome is defined as a totality of environmental exposures that we experience during our life, It includes diet, lifestyle factors, toxic chemicals present in air, water, and consumer products, infections, drugs, and stressful events. But it also includes markers resulting from the interaction between these exposures and the human biology. The exposome includes hundreds of thousands of markers. The concept of the exposome is a game changer, because in most epidemiological studies, we evaluate only a few exposures at a time, and are likely to miss important factors related to breast cancer. Another limitation with our current study is that we, always use, we heavily use questionnaires to reconstruct exposures to diet, lifestyle, or drugs. If you're part of a study, for example, we can ask you, how many glasses of wine have you been drinking during the last week? Often it's easy to remember. Unless you've had too many. But if, we, but if we ask you how many times have you been exposed to chemicals in drinking water during the last year, you can answer. If you don't measure it, you don't know. So the exposome calls for measuring all environmental exposures in a single sample of blood. When first introduced in 2005, it seemed impossible to measure hundreds of thousands of exposures and map the human exposome. So why now? Because now we have the technology and computational tools to map the human exposome. Today, we can measure expression of genes, modification to proteins, and small molecules, including toxic chemicals and molecules produced by the cells, such as hormones, vitamins, or lipid, in a single sample of blood. Today, we can capture thousands of exposures and their interaction with cellular processes and gene expression. And with access to several state-of-the-art facilities, California researchers are well positioned to map the human exposome. So our proposed idea is that instead of looking at only a few exposures at a time, we can map the human exposome and evaluate which one of these thousands of exposures are associated with breast cancer risk. For example, using blood samples collected earlier in life, we can compare the exposome in women who have developed breast cancer later in life with those without the disease. Then we can see how they are different and what markers are strongly associated with breast cancer risk then we can target these markers in follow-up studies to better understand where they are coming from and how they interact with our own biology. Some of these markers might point to toxic chemicals, or lifestyle factors, or dietary factors. This approach was successfully used to discover that a molecule called trimethylamine N-oxide, which is produced by the interaction between dietary nutrients and the gut bacteria, is a major cause of coronary heart disease, Follow-up studies have shown that high blood level of these molecules were associated with, with a 23% higher risk of cardiovascular events and a 55% higher risk of mortality. So this knowledge can be used to design strategies to prevent high blood level of trimethylamine N-oxide by either modifying diet or targeting the gut bacteria. So this story reinforces the idea that a data-driven or agnostic approach can discover important exposures related to breast cancer. Using existing California cohorts of young girls and adult women with different socioeconomic levels and ethnicity, will ultimately identify novel environmental factors related to breast cancer and inform the development of prevention strategies that can reduce exposure to these levels and lower the incidence of breast cancer across the California population. If we expect to reduce the burden of breast cancer, it is time to discover the unknown causes, because we cannot change our genetic, but we can modify our environment.
2: Our next presenter is Barbara Cohn. She's the Research Director of Child Health and Developmental Studies at the Public Health Institute. And her title is Environmental Breast Density, the Clue to Preventing Breast Cancer.
0: Good morning still. Good morning. (laughs) I'm very pleased to be here. And I'm also really fortunate to be able to have followed a couple of these presentations so I can shorten what I have to say. Oh, yes. So here's one of our biggest problems. We just talked about some of this in the PORT presentation and in the exposome presentation. When we talk about breast cancer and we talk about small places, we have small numbers of cases. We have a very hard time establishing what a cancer cluster really is. So we need a different intermediate marker, and I think I know the right one. Breast density, dense breasts are a very strong risk factor for breast cancer. And we have no idea what causes them. But we also know we can change the density of a woman's breast really easily. We give her drugs that block hormones or that change hormones. We change them. And we change them quickly. There have been clinical trials that show this. But giving drugs, like Mel said earlier, is not a really good idea for healthy women. There are side effects. So if we know we can change this really strong risk factor, we need to figure out how we can do it. We now have resources in this state that could be used with your inflammation project, your port project, your exposome project, to make this happen. Because since 2013, sorry, since 2013, the state of California is reporting the density of your breast on your mammogram, whether you want it or not, and whether you know what to do with it or not. 80% of women, Over the age of 40 in this state, including women of color, are receiving mammograms and receiving that density data. That data is sitting there for us to mine. And every community has a score on density. Even if you don't have enough breast cancer cases to study by a port, you can look at the density scores of women who live there as an outcome, as an indicator of risk. And because density might even be a cause of breast cancer, might, maybe if you switch it and you change it, you actually could, within five years, because you can change it in two or three weeks, prevent breast cancer within five years, which is what I was kind of after when I was working on this project. All of the things that you want to correlate with density, the exposome, and genetics, and the interaction between the exposome and genetics, inflammation, and where you live, residents near exposure, can be looked at in relation to density, and changes in density are a great indicator. Now yes, you actually also can look at density in younger women. So here's here's what I'm proposing that we do. We take the resources of California, the density data, we take the existing cohorts that Vincent was just talking about, we have In our own cohort, samples that start before birth, we have in utero exposures. There are other cohorts that have puberty exposures. There are other cohorts that have perimenopausal exposures. These are all critical periods of development for breast cancer. These blood samples can be interrogated, and the density scores of these women can be looked at. And there are measures of density we even could use in younger girls if you wish, but you'd have to collect more data, and I, you can't promise that one in five years. We can start with the women who are of age at risk. And then what can we do? California has enormous resources also that we've mapped the pollution of this state. I wasn't going to really show you this slide, but now I'm going to do it. We have a biomonetary program. We have um, a state that has been mapped. We have, if it would hurry up, it's not working, Okay, let's try it again. No, it's not working. Okay, it's an animated slide, but forget it. Don't look at it. Um, Oh, there it is. There's our woman. She gets her mammogram results. There are all these other women who get mammogram results. Many of these women have donated blood samples decades before or even up to the time just before their mammogram. Many, many, many of these women. We need to know how that blood directly correlates. It's internal dose, not an ecological study, the internal dose and its relationship to their own density score. And then there's the state of California, which has been mapped for pollution, for poverty, for you name it, we got it. We can find the women who are at low risk by area and the women at high risk by area. And what this does is create an enormous opportunity, but the only way to do this is with a coalition of scientists who can share their data, of advocates who can be get going. This could be a Mongo project, a huge project, <laughs> a demonstration project that doesn't require that we measure breast cancer in everybody, but that we account for the strongest risk, risk factor that we know of that we think we could change. And maybe we actually could influence the risk of this disease. We know that identical twins do not have identical breasts. We already know that this is not a characteristic that is driven only by genes. So I hope CBCRFP could consider funding this. It also could force a coalition. Force, that's a bad word. <laughs> Motivate a coalition to share data. Now we have Laura
2: Marculi. She's the owner and exercise physiologist of the Bodyology Sports Performance. They should have given me pronunciation for that. Hopefully, I <laughs> did right. She is going to talk about her idea about low-dose naltrexone, the new breast cancer prevention. Good morning, everyone. In the breast cancer world, we are good at three things. One,
9: awareness, because we see pink everywhere, right? Right. <laughs> Two, in diagnostics. And three, our treatment, because we see new things every single day. But the one thing that we are lacking on is the prevention. They tell you, go out, be healthy. You're going to prevent breast cancer. Guys, I'm an exercise physiologist. I'm a, I was a D1 athlete. I eat my fruits and veggies. But four years ago, I was diagnosed with a stage 3 tumor. So we are doing our best for our prevention, but we can do better. So with that being said, I believe that low-dose naltroxin should be a consideration for the new prevention. So why LDN? Because actually, I was looking at how I can uh, help my uh, thyroid, and I came across some studies, and they started looking at um, independent studies in, in cancer and LDN. And what we know from that is that it does reduce inflammation. It reduces tumor size. In metastatic patients, it reduced the tumor sizes or kept everything at bay. It's low cost, so it is affordable to everyone, and it has little to no side effects from the drug. So in the perfect world, I would uh, want to concentrate on three areas first. One, the BRCA positive or the breast cancer positive genes to target that area. Number two, survivors who have already completed their first uh, treatment and completion And then the third one would be high prevalent risk factor areas based on environmental factors. So how could we check up on this? Uh, Quarterly blood draws, we would uh, easily test for metabolic markers. And then in terms of time, we could put this into play almost immediately. And based on what we have seen with what it does with tumors, I predict that we could see a drastic drop in new diagnoses from that. So with all those factors in play, I don't see why this couldn't be a very good idea on how we can uh, start getting out to the masses on breast cancer v- prevention. Thank you.
2: All right. Our next presenter is Anne, a- Andrea Hindman, who's a postdoctoral researcher, again, at the Silent Spring Institute. And her title is Keeping Abreast of Prevention in Chemical... Safety testing.
10: We learned a critical lesson from a human tragedy. Exposure in the womb to chemicals that mimic hormones have hidden and lifelong consequences. The story goes, pregnant women were given the synthetic hormone diethylstilbestrol or DES to prevent miscarriage in the 1940s. It took 60 years for, for, to realize the harm of this practice that women exposed to DES in the womb, known as DES daughters, had an increased risk for breast cancer later in life. Now, we know exposing pregnant women to hormone-like chemicals like DES was a big mistake. But studies show women's regular exposure to other kinds of hormone-mimicking chemicals, like those in plastics or in personal care products, also alter breast growth and increase cancer risk. What can we do to prevent the next insert chemical name here, generation of daughters? Because 60 years is too long to wait to find out whether an exposure could increase our cancer risk. Our research plan will use what we as researchers and advocates already value about measuring altered breast growth and bring it into chemical safety testing. Then, companies and policymakers can use this knowledge too. We value the rodent mammary gland because it is a top-notch biological indicator and as a good model for the human breast, can show us in the most sensitive way a chemical's potential to influence women's health and breast cancer risk. Like the way we see growth rings in a tree, each layer and its position or thickness reveals something about the life history of the organism, its interaction with the environment, and perhaps can predict its fate. Altered mammary gland growth is the endpoint for prevention, breast cancer prevention, we need in chemical safety testing. That's because today's testing asks two main questions— One, does a chemical unlock the initial hormone response? And two, does that chemical cause tumors? For one, unlocking the initial hormone response is not specific enough to predict sensitive changes in tissue that can happen later in life, like in the breast. And if we only focus on cancer growth, where's the prevention in that? Our research plan builds on the past efforts of CBCRP and Dr. Sue Fenton. We want to bring together many research labs to develop best practices for measuring altered mammary gland growth following chemical exposure. While this research plan may sound simple, inconsistent knowledge and perceived difficulty of measuring altered gland growth prevents its use in chemical safety testing. That without standard measurements, a drinking water guideline set this past year was 17 times less protective against changes in the mammary gland because those changes were labeled as a developing topic. Clearly, we need to develop this topic so that all of us, (laughs) researchers, advocates, and policymakers, agree to connect the dots between altered breast growth and cancer risk. Now, while womb exposure was critical in the case of DES daughters, other windows of breast growth are significantly vulnerable to chemical exposure, preconception, puberty, and pregnancy. Connecting chemical exposure to altered breast growth in these other windows will connect, um, will finally close the decades-long gap between exposure and risk to promote lifespan protection. And together, we can make prevention happen now in
2: our final but not you know this was all randomized so this is not the least this is our final presenter hannah louis park who's assistant professor at the university of california irvine and her title is in utero and preconception determinants of breast cancer risk
11: thank you to prevent breast cancer we have to be steps ahead I'm a molecular biologist and epidemiologist, so I study large populations of women to try to figure out why some women get breast cancer and others don't. And I also look for biomarkers, for example, molecules in the blood, that can tell us about a woman's breast cancer risk. In the next few minutes, I'm going to try to convince you that we need to look at molecular markers not only in our present, but also in our past, in order to guide our way towards the future, which, in my view, is personalized breast cancer prevention. While 5 to 10% of breast cancers are due to genetic mutations, most breast cancers are thought to be due, in large part, to environmental exposures and lifestyle factors. But we still don't understand how this all works. And genetics is important, but for the past 15 years, I've been studying something called epigenetics, which is the study of heritable changes in gene expression that don't involve changes in the DNA sequence. And epigenetics is neat because environmental exposures and lifestyle factors can change our epigenetics. That is, they can leave molecular marks on our DNA that thus affect gene expression and potentially cancer risk. And while we can't change the DNA that we were born with, we can choose to move more, eat less, and quit smoking to try to undo or counteract the bad molecular marks that we've been accumulating over the course of our lifetime. But what if this isn't enough? A fascinating but understudied area of research is how exposures can affect our health even before we're born. So it's not only what your mother was doing when she was carrying you, but also what she was doing as a child. What your father was doing, your grandparents, or even great-grandparents, all the stresses they endured, all of this could potentially be affecting your health. This may sound crazy, but you've already heard of the DES study. And there have been studies that have shown that women who were exposed in utero to high levels of the pesticide DDT had four times the risk of breast cancer compared to other women. And this was accompanied by changes in epigenetics in some breast cancer-related genes. And animal studies have shown that epigenetic alterations can be passed down through several generations, through both the paternal and the maternal line. So is it possible that some of us were born with an epigenetic susceptibility to breast cancer? And if so, what can we do about it? To answer the first question, first we need to expand our panel of epigenetic markers to cover more exposures that we face every day. We have such markers for things like obesity and cigarette smoking, and I'm working on identifying um, epigenetic markers for pesticide exposure. But we need to cover more of these exposures, things we face every day, like air pollution, water pollution, the ports, where we live, chemicals, viruses. And we need to do this in multiple generations, hopefully in populations with um, an array of social economic status, race ethnicities, so that we can determine if these factors are indeed associated with breast cancer risk. And this would enable us to better determine a woman's individual risk so that we can design strategies, personalized strategies, for her to counteract these risks. We can test these prevention strategies in animal models. There's been fascinating and exciting work in the neurobehavior field where they've shown that trauma-induced epigenetic changes in the mouse brain from previous generations could be counteracted by environmental interventions. But these are the kinds of studies that we need to do in the context of breast cancer prevention. Using this multi-pronged approach, we will be able to better determine a woman's personal breast cancer risk by incorporating not only her genetic factors, along with her personal health history, and exposures and lifestyle factors, but also accounting for the epigenetic marks that she may have inherited from her parents or grandparents. And we will be able to establish prevention strategies for individual women to counteract her specific factors, and thereby decrease not only her breast cancer risk, but potentially the risk in her daughters, granddaughters, and future generations.